Welcome to the Dermatology Interest Group Association podcast, or DIGA podcast, where we talk about everything from how to become a stellar dermatology applicant to interesting topics in dermatology. From research advice to interviewing tips, you will be prepared to follow the path to become a world-class dermatologist. Hey y'all, it's Johnny. Today's episode is a re-recording or broadcast of the DIGA webinar we had with Dr. Steve Feldman. He's a world expert on psoriasis, and this webinar was where we spent time live on Twitter, and Dr. Steve Feldman uh, shared tips with medical students and residents on how to best manage and approach psoriasis of patients. We hope you enjoy. See you on the skin side. So I want to start off by introducing myself. I'm Dr. Hannah Kopelman. I am passionate about dermatology, as all of you are and I'm especially interested in psoriasis. So this lecture tonight is co-hosted through the DIGA organization, which stands for the Dermatology Interest Group Association, which serves as a resource for many aspiring and current dermatologists. The first thing I wanna point out is that psoriasis impacts the lives of over 60 million people around the world and 7 million in the US alone. Therefore, I feel that it is our duty as future or current dermatologists to gain the expertise and competence to be able to properly diagnose, manage, and treat this current disease. I'm very excited to be welcoming Dr. Stephen Feldman, our guest speaker this evening, who has been a wonderful mentor to me over the years. Dr. Stephen Feldman is a professor of dermatology at Wake Forest School of Medicine, he also serves on the medical board of the National Psoriasis Foundation and directs psoriasis education programs for the American Academy of Dermatology. He has given more than 700 invited lectures to dermatology groups and organizations around the world. So I guess tonight um, we will make that 701. His research has been published in over a thousand midline reference articles. Dr. Feldman also serves as the editor of the Journal of Dermatological Treatment and the, um, and the Journal of Dermatology and Dermatological Surgery, as well as the chief medical editor of the Dermatologist. Thank you all for joining this evening. I hope you enjoy this lecture and feel free to ask any questions. This is a learning experience, so we really want um, you know, people to be engaged. Um, this will also be shared on my Twitter, and I will have Diga's shared shared on their Twitter. If you want to rewatch it in the future, or share it with friends who are not able to join tonight, so let's please welcome Dr. Steve Feldman. So I should tell you something about. Uh, let me just tell you how I got started in psoriasis. I'm a nerdy test tube scientist, and um, they hired me at Wake Forest University to run the the, the basic science lab, not really to see patients. They only gave me one half day a week of patient care responsibilities when I started. If somebody could put in the chat when they think that half day was, anybody know? Let's see if we get anything in the chat here. I don't see anything yet. Nothing, nobody? Nobody knows when they gave, what half day they gave me? Here we go. Friday's half right. Friday afternoon would be the correct answer. Yeah, Friday afternoons. Uh, and um, we had this fabulous psoriasis specialist, Michael Zanoli at the time. And there we overlapped. If I didn't know what to do for a psoriasis patient, which I often didn't, I gave them to, to Michael. 
And um, so I treat people maybe with a little triamcinolone topical steroid. If they didn't get better, off they go to Dr. Zanoli. But after I'd been here a year at Wake Forest, Michael's wife graduated and he moved away back home to the Tennessee area. And so the next day I was the psoriasis specialist for the department. And it was seemed so calm. I was looking at Dr. Zanoli's notes. He had people with mild, moderate, and severe disease and also complicated. I needed a simple approach. So to start, my simple approach for managing psoriasis was to consider it one of two diseases. Either they had limited psoriasis, which could be defined as they could put topicals on all their spots, or they had generalized psoriasis where they couldn't put topicals on all their spots. Uh, let's talk about my psoriasis first. Um, no, let me, let me step back. For all psoriasis patients, especially in the old days, before we had modern treatments that just clear people up, it was very important to educate them about their options and the risks and the benefits. And the National Psoriasis Foundation was a huge resource for doing that. You might want to check it out. It's psoriasis.org. They've got fabulous materials for educating patients and doctors. They've got a nice real algorithm book for how to manage psoriasis. It's really terrific. Uh, and then the next step after educating the patient was to ask them if they have any joint problems, and I still do that. And if they have joint problems, I'll send them to a rheumatologist. Some dermatologists tell me they manage joint disease. I don't manage joint disease. I don't know the first thing about joints. I asked rheumatologists, how should I screen for, for arthritis? And they said, well, just ask about morning stiffness, joint pain, joint swelling, and fatigue. And I'm like, fatigue? I mean, everybody's got fatigue. I'm not asking that. That's not going to be useful. Uh, and so I, I might ask about morning stiffness, joint pain, and back pain, because they may not realize their back pain is arthritis. And I asked the rheumatologist what physical exam I should do for, you know, as part of the screening process. And the rheumatologist said, oh, that's simple. Just do a complete musculoskeletal exam, including measuring range of motion of the joints and gait. I'm like, no, I'm not doing that. So I think if you have psoriasis and there's any signs of psoriatic arthritis, you need to see a rheumatologist because I'm not going to do a complete musculoskeletal exam, including range of motion and evaluation of gait. Okay. Now let's talk about the patients who have limited psoriasis. They can be treated with topicals. They don't always get better with topicals. And that's for one of three reasons. If somebody could put in the chat, and I don't want to see any answers from my research fellows who shouldn't be wasting their time on this call anyway, they should be writing papers. Go ahead and put in the number one reason why patients don't improve with topicals. Anybody? You don't have to get all three. Just get one of the top three reasons. Let's see what. Incorrect, yes. Incorrect diagnosis and the wrong treatment are not two of the three reasons, not two of the top three reasons anyway. The, the number one reason that people with limited psoriasis won't get better with topical therapy is because they don't put the topical therapy on. Poor problems of absorption of topical creams is not one of the top three reasons either because disease skin has poor barrier function. When you see these big thick psoriasis plaques, you think, oh, stuff won't penetrate. Those big thick plaques have high levels of transepidermal water loss and they have poor barrier function. So the medicines go right through them. 
The number one reason is poor compliance to the topical therapy. The second biggest reason is poor compliance to the treatment. And the third biggest reason is poor compliance to the treatment. They may have taught you in medical school that patients don't take their pills very well. Patients are even worse about putting topicals on. And um, I discovered this because I was one of the worst dermatologists on the planet, right? They didn't hire me to see patients. They hired me to run a test tube research lab. And it was great when our psoriasis specialist was, because then I didn't have to know all of dermatology. I just had to know psoriasis. I could walk in the room, hand, see that it's psoriasis, hand people the prescriptions and walk out thinking I made the right diagnosis. I prescribed the right therapy, but my patients weren't taking their medicines. And then one of my research colleagues told me there was a company uh, out of California that sold medicine bottle caps that contain computer chips that record the day and time people open and close the bottles. So I turned to my minions. I said, I don't care what they cost. Let's find out what my psoriasis patients are doing with the medicine. And what we found is that patients use of the medicine in a study starts off real good the first day and then grows down like by about 20% every five weeks. And if it continued going down at that rate, then it should go to about zero in 25 weeks. Does anybody know the term in dermatology we use? for when the compliance goes to zero, when use of medicine drops to zero? Hannah, do you know the term? There's a term we use in dermatology for when the use of a topical steroid drops to zero. It's called tachyphylaxis. Oh, tachyphylaxis, yes. You may have been taught tachyphylaxis is the more you use a steroid, the less it works. It's actually the less you use the steroid, the less it works. By the way, one of the nice things about this uh, Zoom thing is I can see who's not muted. Let's see. My buddy Mary Beth's not muted. Anna's not muted. Oh, interesting. Okay, great. So. That's uh, one of the reasons sometimes they have to switch you to a different uh, steroid. Yeah, they say you have to switch to a different steroid. If you switch them to a, the same steroid in a different colored container, it probably works just as well as switching them to a different steroid. Because, I mean, what this idea of tachyphylaxis, I asked Mark Lebwall, we were talking once about tachyphylaxis. I said, you can't study it because you can't define it. And he says, oh, oh, it's easy to define. Tachyphylaxis is the more you use the steroid, the less it works. He got it completely backwards. It's not the more you use it, the less it works. It's the less you use it, the less it works. I mean, do the steroids somehow cause mutations in your steroid receptors? I mean, if you apoptose the T cells in the psoriasis, how does the psoriasis come back? Well, it comes back from T cells in your lymph nodes, right? How much topical steroid did you put on the lymph node? You didn't put a topical steroid in the lymph node. Whole thing didn't make any sense. Had to be the bus they use it, the less it works. And so with this understanding, when I treat limited psoriasis, I try to do it in such a way to get people to use the medicine. So. First thing I have to do is make sure the patient trusts me. So I do that by opening the door to the exam room real slow so they don't think I'm in a hurry. I'm in a hurry, but I don't want them to know I'm in a hurry. I open the door real slowly. It takes a second or two longer. I put the alcohol in my hands, make a big deal of it, shake hands with people while I actually bump fists with the people in the room. And, uh, and I pretend I'm one of those empathetic caring doctors. I got to go to a meeting of the empathetic caring doctors once. It's the Dermanity Society. 
I don't know if it still exists, but you may want to get one of their members to come talk because they're built they're like the opposite of me. I went got to their meeting early before my lecture um, to see what they're like. And they were reading poetry to each other. One of them was talking about, oh, I love listening to patient stories. I went to medicine because I like listening to patient stories. I'm like, what? You know, I, I went to medicine because I want people to get well. I don't want to hear the stories. Uh, but, you know, I'll listen to their stories to make them think I'm one of those caring, empathetic docs. I like to ask them questions that make them think I'm an empathetic, caring doctor. Like, I bet you found the previous treatment to be really frustrating. You know what percentage of patients found the previous treatment frustrating? Roughly, uh, somebody put in the meeting chat. This is your chance. We'll see who gets to the closest answer. What percentage of people found the previous treatment to be really frustrating? Anybody who said less than 100 is wrong, okay? If you said less than 100%, you're wrong because if they had a treatment that they really liked, that they were doing really well on, they wouldn't be there in the room. So I get no information asking this question, but people don't see that. And this is a form of selection bias that I just love. It's like, what, what is the chance that if a patient has seen a family doctor and comes to see me for a rash, what, what's the chance that the family doctor cured the rash? Roughly zero, right? I never see a success from a family doctor. What is the chance that a, that a dermatologist thinks that allergists are really good about controlling people's allergies? I've never seen a patient with an allergy that the, that the allergists have managed to control because they don't send me the What is the chance that a surgeon thinks that surgery by a dermatologist is a good idea? Like zero, because they've only seen our failures. It's fascinating phenomenon that affects how people in different religions, different countries, you know, think about each other. Very powerful effect. Okay, so I ask those questions. I I palpate their lesions. Oh, that's a really thick plaque of psoriasis. At times, I would pull out my lighted magnifier, one I bought on eBay for seven dollars, hold it over lesions, pretend to look through it, make people think I really looked at their spots. I established this foundation so that they think I'm a caring, empathetic doctor. I prescribe them a very simple plan. You know, I've got, I work with residents and they'll give like hydrocortisone for the face, priamcinolone for the body, clobetazole for the elbows and knees, tar shampoo and clobetazole for a solution for the scalp. They'll give people six prescriptions so that they've tailored the approach to the specifics of the patient. And that's all well and good if patients were test tubes that did what you told them to do, but they don't. So what I do is I pick one steroid and I just give them the one drug, if at all possible. If they've got disease on their scalp and their elbows and their genitals, I'll give them maybe some clobetazole solution. Tell them, put it in your scalp twice a day, spray some on your elbows and knees. It'll say not to use it on your genitals, but go ahead and do it for two or three days. I want to make the treatment as simple as I could possibly make it. Low cost, generic, clobetazole solution. You know, if you want to give them the clobetazole spray, I'll have them buy the generic solution and just put it in a spray bottle from the dollar store. And then I hold them accountable. And this is the most important lesson I'm going to tell you about tonight. The main reason patients aren't using the, well, let's, let's just use the meeting chat real quick. Put into the meeting chat a couple of reasons you taught in medical school why people don't use their medicines. And we'll see if any of you put down 
the real reason patients don't use their medicine. Yes, she is a, uh, they don't know how to use them, right? They're poorly educated. They don't think it's working. Side effects and interactions, lack of understanding, time-consuming, inability to afford, confusion, financial. You know, y'all have missed the number one reason, all right? All of these reasons are, are things they teach you about in medical school. Before I teach you the number one reason, I, I want to share with you something about the answers you've given. You said they don't know how to use them. What that should have said is the doctor didn't explain it in such a way that the patient knew how to use them. They don't think it's working. The doctor didn't explain or didn't set it up so that it would work, so that they would know it works. Side effects and interaction. The doctor didn't use side effects to their advantage and make the patient think the side effect is an advantage of the drug. You can frame all, all of your, or have been taught to frame these as a way of blaming the patient, but we should, we, the second most important lesson I wanna share with you is something dermatologist Danny Berg taught me. It was a Vietnamese philosopher, uh, thick net something, uh, thick not Han, I think is his name, thick not Han. And he said, if the lettuce growing well, you don't blame the lettuce, okay? You got to give the lettuce more light, more sun, more water. I don't know what you got to do, but you responsibility. You don't blame the lettuce. All of these things are blaming the patient. Um, too time consuming to apply. The doctor made it, didn't make it seem like it was easy to apply. Inability to afford. The doctor didn't prescribe affordable medicines. We can convert these things into a frame that makes it our responsibility. And then it's more clear that, that we need to take uh Responsible responsibility for it. They don't feel any, this. This somebody said, Shannon, no accountability person. That's the issue. That's what's missing. And I want to prove to you how critical accountability is with the parable of the piano teacher. If you've heard already familiar with the parable of the piano teacher, tell me so in the meeting chat. I'm gonna, otherwise, I'm assuming you haven't heard this. Uh, I'm going to show a hands. How many of y'all have taken piano lessons? Yeah. Okay. The piano teacher gives you the sheet music and says, practice this every day. We'll meet once a week for piano lessons and we'll have a recital in eight to 12 weeks. That recital is going to sound pretty good because people are going to practice some every week. What would happen if a new piano teacher said, well, that's a very inefficient system. The reason they sound good is because they're practicing every week, not because of the weekly lessons. So I will give them the sheet music, tell them to practice every day. I won't have weekly lessons with them. I'll just tell them to practice every day and see them at the recital in eight to 12 weeks. How would that recital sound? Anybody? Uh, meeting chat. I need a word for how that recital would sound if they didn't have weekly lessons. Bad terrible, awful. The best word I think is execrable. You can look it up if you don't know what that means. Execrable. That's right. Now, what would happen if that piano teacher said, oh, that recital sounded horrible. I'm going to go to the medical literature and find out what they say in medicine to do to get people to practice. Okay, so let's see. What, what did you say? So he's going to say they don't know how to practice. So I will give them instructions on how to practice. I'll give them instructions to make sure they know that it's working. 
I'll address the side effects of the, of the of, on their fingers. I'll make sure they understand how to practice. Uh, I'll make sure that the uh, the sheet music and the piano is affordable. I'll make sure they're not confused. Um, I'll uh, motivate them. I'll give them a reminder system because they're forgetful. So the piano teacher did everything you suggested, but doesn't have weekly lessons with them and just says, I'll see you in another three months. How would that recital sound? Still would sound execrable. Drug studies are like piano lessons, right? They bring patients back a week's one, two, four, six, eight. Patients use the medicine, great. What is real? Which of those two are... Which of those two are real life interactions with doctors like? The first one or the second one? Just put a one or a two in the chat. One, I see people say number one, it's like the doctors, like it's like piano lessons. Real life practice is like a one. It's the first of the two, like having piano lessons. Two, two. The correct answer is neither. Real life medical practice is like a dermatologist giving the patient a prescription for some sheet music. Just a prescription for sheet music and saying, take this prescription for the sheet music to the um, music store and fill the prescription. Now, I don't know how much it's gonna cost or whether your insurance company is gonna pay for it or not, or if they do pay for it, how much paperwork you're gonna to have to go through to get the medicine. But I want you to fill this prescription for the sheet music. I want you to practice every day. Practicing may cause rashes, diarrhea, possibly a serious infection, but I want you to practice every day. I will see you at the recital in two or three months. Now the recital may not sound good. And if it doesn't, I will give you a second and possibly a third musical instrument to practice at the same time. That's what medical care is like. Now, if you have somebody with psoriasis and it really bothers them, okay, then they're going to use the medicine well, right? No, don't be naive. They don't do it, even when it bothers them. One study showed that the more the disease bothered the patient, the worse they use the medicine. Patients are like that. So um, I work with the most motivated people on the planet, the most effective most motivated people on the planet. Does anybody know uh, who those people are? And if any of my current or former fellows are on this call and want to answer that question, you can, but you shouldn't be here. You should be writing papers. Uh, anybody know who the most motivated people I work with are? I don't medical students, yes. Medical students who want a dermatology residency are the most motivated most effective, most motivated people on the planet. If they come to work with me for the summer, do I tell them at the beginning of the summer, here's your project, work on this every day, see you again in three months, like a doctor would tell a patient? No, absurd, even they, the most motivated people on the planet would fail. I have monthly lab meetings, I'm sorry, I have weekly lab meetings with my minions to make sure that, see, I make them think they might present to me once a week, which makes them work all week. It's a really effective system. And I do it for one and only one reason, because I care about my medical students and I wanna do everything I can to help them get a Durham residency. And if I didn't have those weekly meetings with them, or even if I knew, in if I let them know in advance when I was gonna kill one of those meetings, I'd be hurting their chances. Okay, 
Does y'all feel uh, like we got a pretty good sense of how to manage limited psoriasis? You basically give people some clobetazole. You give it in the vehicle they're willing to use. You tell them, we're just going to do this for three days, maybe a week. And then you either see them back or you have them send you a text message in the a text message or my, uh, a message in the electronic portal. Or you, what I do is I give them my cell phone number and I tell them, I need to know how this is working for you. Call me in one week and report your progress. That forces them to fill the prescription, forces them to use the medicine real well. And then when they call, you can answer the phone if you want, but you don't have to because it doesn't change what they already did. And if you don't answer the phone, the message usually sounds something like this. Oh, I am so relieved you didn't answer the phone. I really didn't want to bother you, but you said I had to call. You're right. The medicine worked like a miracle. I'm like 90% better already. And then they see that the drug works, it works fast, and they stick with it as needed to keep their disease under control. All right. Uh, I think that's a great stopping point for limited disease. Uh, how long do we did, have? Do uh, we Dr. Feldman has a Zoom talk now, so I was on it. Oh, I'm sorry. You found the game. Yeah, I found it. Madison, is that you talking? Or is that Hannah? That's Madison. Oh, okay. it's Madison. Madison, it was great to hear your voice. I'm sorry. No problem. <laughs> um, so, yeah. You can continue, and people are, it's, this is an open floor. So, anyone who want to ask questions and propose to Dr. Uh, Feldman, feel free. Yeah, you can put them in the chat or you just unmute yourself like Madison and just, you know, have at it. Uh, Hi, Dr. Feldman. Yeah. My name is Ashley. Well, this is Ashley. Um, I'm a second year medical student from New York City. Um, I actually used to be a pharmacy technician. I'm still certified, but I recently quit my job. Yay. <laughs> but I used to be a pharmacy technician. And there seems to be a lot of reliance on pharmacists to follow up with patients about medications that they should be taking. Um, do you think there should be a collaboration between the pharmacists and the prescribing dermatologists for following up on patients with their psoriasis treatment, because um, there is a system in place for, for example, um, patients who aren't taking their insulin, there is a system in place where pharmacists do have to communicate with their um, the prescribing doctor um, that this patient is not adhering to the medication. So you think a uh, partnership like that should also exist for psoriasis? Sure. I love it. Uh, first, let me just say, dermatologists hate pharmacists. Dermatologists think pharmacists are evil. Do you know why? Because it's like the selection bias we talked about earlier. Uh, if the pharmacist has helping, the dermatologist never hears about it. If the dermatologist, if, if the pharmacist tells the patient, ooh, clobetazole, that's really risky stuff, be careful with it. And the dermatologist hears about that and generally doesn't like it. And so dermatologists get this really warped view. Pharmacists can be very helpful. I love the idea of pharmacists helping. I don't know how far helpful pharmacists can be with topical therapy because you never know how much with pills, you know, when you've got a month's supply with topicals, it's really not so certain. So pharmacists have a harder time probably knowing. I mean, you may know better than I do about this because I'm not a pharmacist of knowing when patients really do need whether they are taking their topicals or not, especially when topicals are used on an as needed basis after you clear disease. I think it would be really hard for the pharmacist to follow up. Um, Insulin diabetes is a high cost problem for society. And so there's really good economic incentives for insurers to, you know, get in, you know, the pharmacists involved with the care. 
And I think we see this in high cost psoriasis when we get to talking about biologics and specialty pharmacies and specialty pharmacies that are incentivized to get people to take their medicines regularly. And, and I think there are real partnerships happening there that are very helpful with pharmacies following up and making sure patients are filling the medicine like they're supposed to. I don't, now, I don't know that the patients actually take the medicine. I, I, filling is, is a, a necessary but not sufficient step. They may be collecting the, the medicine in a drawer in their refrigerator or in their dine, in their bedroom, for all I know, you know, with all the extras that they're accumulating. It's a great question. Yeah, if you have suggestions for how uh, 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 dermatologists should be partnering with pharmacists, please email them to me directly and I will steal the ideas, put them in my next book, possibly do a research study uh, on that. Any other questions about uh, localized psoriasis before we jump into the systemic treatments? No, okay. Well, if you have any other thoughts, feel free to put them in the chat. Uh, so now let's talk about the people who have extensive psoriasis. If you've got extensive psoriasis, total body light treatment or some internal medicine is in order. Light treatment, uh, I have a light box in my office, works pretty well, uh, the, uh, but it's not convenient for many people. You can give them a home light unit, relatively low cost, especially compared to a biologic, uh, and you can get insurers to cover it a lot of the time. And if you don't want to do a home light unit, if you think it's too complicated to figure out how to do it, really and now that hard, uh, you can just have people go to a tanning bed. Now, some, I know this is going to be hard to believe. Some dermatologists don't like tanning beds. Some dermatologists are so anti-tanning bed, they won't even let the American Academy of Dermatology mention that tanning beds are highly effective treatment for psoriasis. In fact, tanning might be the most common form of ultraviolet light treatment used as a treatment for psoriasis in the United States. Um, I, ha I have one antidote to mention. I saw a patient this week who came in, he was never diagnosed with psoriasis and he clearly had some on his abdomen and his flanks. And he said, you know, I noticed I got this rash after I got sunburn and over the summer. And we said, yeah, well, actually sometimes psoriasis can, you can notice it after a bad sunburn. So he said, oh, well, should I avoid the sun? And we said, no, you should. Sun's actually good. And contrary to what many dermatologists might tell you, but you don't want to get sunburn. So it was, it was a little complicated for, he was a little, he felt like he was getting mixed messages. We were telling him sun was good, but not to get sunburn. Yeah. Yeah. It's good for, uh, calming down the skin's immune system, but you don't want to injure the skin because injury brings in the psoriasis. And I like to tell patients it's in the Bible to treat psoriasis with ultraviolet light. It's, you know, all natural. It's been used for thousands of years. I believe in the Bible, I seem to remember from Hebrew school, there, was a, there were places where they sent the, de the, the lepers into the desert and the leprosy cleared up. And I am quite convinced that the Bible has no inaccuracies whatsoever and that just somebody mistranslated it somewhere along the way, the word where they meant psoriasis, where God meant the word psoriasis to be there. When By the time it got to English, they changed the word psoriasis to leprosy. It was a mistranslation. The Bible wasn't mistaken. 
So I believe that that's what they were doing. I think they were doing phototherapy for psoriasis way back when. And it's perfectly good. Now, there's some dermatologists that think tanning beds don't work. Uh, oh, Second Kings. Thank you for so much. I'm going to have to look that up. So um, the uh, uh, so many dermatologists B light is like 100 times more effective than UVA light. And they know that tanning beds don't work because they've seen so many people who tried it and didn't have a, a good response. Mental thought experiment. Now, it's true that UVB is 100 times more potent than UVA light, but, you can, but it's also 100 times more potent at burning people. So you can give 100 times as many joules of UVA light, and the number of joules in a tanning bed is plenty to give people improvement in their psoriasis. And this has been proven. Some, some crazy dermatologists actually took people with psoriasis, put them in a wolf system tanning bed, and published in the Journal of Investigative Dermatology, because the JAD wouldn't take the article, the tanning beds made psoriasis better. It, you, you can find the publication. The dermatologists don't think they do. We'll do a little mental experiment. Let's say you're a good dermatologist. You know UVA is 100 times more effective than UVA, but you didn't know about the, that you could give 100 times as much UVA. You have a UVB light box in your office, and you put psoriasis patients in it. And the light box is 80% effective. So if you um, see 10 patients, and you treat them with your office light box. Show me in the chat. The light box is 80%. If you treat 10 patients, how many patients will clear? Assuming it's 80% effective at clearing people. I see a number of eights going in the chat. Excellent. Great. All right. Now, let's say that dermatologist doesn't send people to tanning beds, but he sees people who tried tanning beds. Let's assume the tanning bed in his community is also 80% effective. If he sees 10 people, who tried the tanning bed, how many of them would be clear? I'm not going to go on until I see some more numbers in the chat. Excellent. I finally got a zero. Excellent. Somebody was listening earlier. Yes. Anybody who would clear, let's say 50 people go to the tanning bed, 40 clear, 10 don't clear. Which ones are going to go to the dermatologist? the 10 that didn't clear. The dermatologist is going to think that tanning beds don't work. You know, if you're Jewish like me and, the, and you read the newspapers, the cover of the newspaper, what do you know about Catholic priests? Somebody put it in the chat. What do I know about Catholic priests from reading the newspaper? Anybody? Go ahead in the chat. No good. That's not specific enough. I want to know what do I know about Catholic priests? One word answer, please. Nobody's going to put pedophile in the chat for me. All right, fine. They're not all pedophiles, but you can see how you could get a work view of it from reading the newspapers. All right. I think we covered phototherapy pretty well. You can do UV in the office. You can do home UV. You can do tanning bed. Uh, other than UV, what are your thoughts on near-infrared? I don't know about enough about near-infrared for psoriasis. I haven't seen enough data. Great question. I just don't know. Uh, that's just like warmth in near infrared, I guess. Got me. By the way, do y'all know why people go to tanning beds? Why they're they're addicted to tanning beds? It's not to look better. Because if you look at the people who do this, these women who go regularly, they look horrible. Their skin's all mottled and wrinkled. It's terrible looking. They're addicted to the endorphins that are released from the skin when the UV light hits the skin, or at least there's some good evidence for that. You can 
check that out sometime for fun. Okay, so that's light treatment. Uh, then with the systemic treatment, it used to be we'd use methotrexate. Unless the insurer makes me do it, I don't do methotrexate. Used to use TNF inhibitors. They're, they were revolutionary. I don't use those anymore because they're not as safe as IL-17 drugs, uh, which are probably the fastest acting biologics and are extraordinarily effective. But in the long run, the IL-23 drugs, I think, have better long-lasting activity and there are fewer shots. And most importantly, they don't cause inflammatory bowel disease like IL-17 drugs sometimes do. So my preference is to give people an IL-23 inhibitor unless they say, doc, I, I, I just want you to give me the fastest thing you got. Then I might give them, you know, like an ixekizumab or a secukinumab, a Tals or Cosentix. Um, but normally I'm going to give them like a Trimphy or a Styrizin. And then, you know, if they say, doc, I want a pill, I'll give them a pill. Although I can convince people not to take a pill. Like people come in, they're terrified of injections. And, and I get them over it very easily. I tell them I got, you, you could go with the pill, but we have a shot you take once a day. And um, did, um, did I just say once a day? Oh God, having another senior moment. You won't have to take it once a day. The injections are only every two to three months. Now, if I tell somebody that they have, a, they have to take an injection every two or three months, they're comparing taking that injection to taking a pill. They don't want to do it. If I accidentally say once a day first, then when I say every two to three months, they're comparing every two to three months to once a day. They go, oh, every two to three months is nothing. I can do that. That's no problem at all. And they're happy to take the injection therapy. Um, other things I will, other people prefer all natural treatments. And so they should come see me because I only prescribe all natural treatments like interleukin-23 inhibitors, TNF inhibitors, whatever. I mean, everything I prescribe is found in nature because CVS and Walgreens is part of nature. And so if, a, you know, I will explain to patients, this is an all natural, organic, anti-inflammatory designed to complement your natural healing mechanisms. It brings your immune system back into balance and harmony because I like to take a holistic approach to the management of psoriasis. Um, if they're worried about the risks, I explain right now, because you have so much psoriasis, your immune system is totally out of balance. And right now you have about a one in a hundred chance of developing a serious infection. But we can put you on this all natural, organic, gluten-free, anti-inflammatory designed to complement your natural healing mechanisms, get your immune system back into balance. Because I like to take a holistic approach. And then once your immune system back into balance, 99 times in a hundred, there's no serious infection. Now, one in 100 having a serious infection is the same as 99 out of 100 not having a serious infection, but one out of 100 having a serious infection is terrified because when you tell people one in anything, they think, oh, it's going to be me. I know it's going to be me. So, but then when you tell them 99 out of 100 don't get that, then they're like, oh, okay, no problem. Okay, I think that's everything there is to, well, then there's, so pick two, which is pretty good too. Uh, a good oral option is more effective. It's like in the order, the order of like a Stolar Humira, not quite like an IL-23 block. IL-23 block would be my first choice because um, I know it's safe and effective. So TIC2 looks pretty safe in the trials, but I don't know for sure what happens after 10,000 people get treated for five years. So I'm in no rush to use it as the first line choice, but you know, you can. And you say, haha, these pitches are amazing. Yeah. If you want to know more, I wrote an entire book on how to get people to take their medicine. It's a, another fun topic besides just psoriasis.
Uh, I think that covers everything about, you know, the extent of at least the basics of treating people with extensive disease. Um, any questions or comments about extensive disease or anything else I want to talk about tonight? What time is it? 8.15. We, we go until when? 8.30? 825? What do whenever you do? You, whenever you want to stop. Whenever. Oh, excellent. I don't care. I don't want to stop. Keep going. <laughs> Ever. This is fun. What do you want to talk about? Any questions? <laughs> Any other questions or things you want to ask Dr. Feldman? As you can see, he's very open, so don't be scared. Yeah. Let me tell you what changed uh, how I, I'm still one of the worst dermatologists, but I try hard. And the reason I try hard is because my my medical center started doing patient satisfaction surveys. See, I used to walk into the room, make the diagnosis, hand the patient prescription, walk in, and I thought I was doing a great job. And I continued to think that until our, our, our medical center started doing patient satisfaction surveys, and they showed me the results. And I remember some of the patients said, oh, I really like Dr. Feldman. Others said stuff like, I wouldn't send my dog to that uncaring asshole. You know what my first thought was when I read that? They had me confused with my partner, Dr. Fleischer. And then I realized, no, I just walk in, walk out. They think I don't care about them. I need to change my behavior. It was eye-opening to me. And so from that point forward, not only that, getting that feedback was so valuable to me that in the early 2000s, since I started a doctor rating website so that patients could do these patient satisfaction surveys online at low cost and, and, and give, give doctors feedback. Um, and, and, and then I could analyze the data, write scientific publications and found what patients wanted. Patients didn't say, you know, when they rarely said, oh, the doctor made the wrong diagnosis or prescribed the wrong treatment. They said stuff like the doctor didn't care, you know? So the foundation of treatment is making sure patients think you care about them. I know you care about them. That doesn't affect them at all. What matters is their perceptions of whether you care about. I care about patients. I want them to get well. But now I make sure patients realize that I care about them. Um, that was an incredibly eye-opening experience for me and, and, and changed how I approached the management. And then the other thing, was walking down the hall with my partner, Dr. Raj Balkrishnan, who told me about the computer chips and the caps that would record when people open and close the bottle. And when we did our first study and showed patients of use of the medicine drops like or drop like by 20% every five weeks in psoriasis, we did a study of children with eczema where we didn't tell the parent or the child they were in, even in a research study so we could find out what real kids did. And their use of the medicine dropped like a rock dropped by 70% over the first three days of the study. And so, you know, seeing those things totally changed my approach to managing psoriasis and other skin disease, making the treatment simple and focusing, laser focused on making sure patients would use the treatment. Uh, so before we wrap up, I see we have a few questions. One yeah. is uh, Shannon, other than UVAB light, what are your thoughts on NIR near infrared light? Yeah, we went over that. I don't know enough about near infrared. The other, the next question that I hadn't covered yet was psoriasis, uh, the manifestation of a plastic syndrome. Yeah, um, if somebody has cancer, can it cause a psoriasis flare? Maybe I don't think it's a common event. Um, 
It was a direct, others can't see my questions. A what direct is, message, okay. What is your opinion uh, on creating more? Yes, it was a direct planet. message to me. Okay, great. Uh, thank you for clearing that up. Okay, uh, I would definitely love to hear your opinions on creating more room derm clinics. Uh, for uh, yeah, I tell you what, the chairman of my department, Dr. Lindsay Stroud, runs a room derm clinic. Invite her on, so she could talk to y'all about that. Uh, that will be much more valuable than my opinion. I don't know enough about it. I've never done a room derm clinic. I guess it'd be great. I mean, more collaboration is better. Uh, if I had a rheumatologist working in the rooms, you know, in the pod next to mine, then if I had a patient who had joint problems, I could send them across the hall and that would be better for everybody. Now I have to fill out a, a referral and it may take time and that's not as good. And there's probably, and Stroud would probably tell you about all the synergies that happen when the room and the dermatologist are there together. And I haven't had that experience, so I don't know. And our last, how do I deal with? Hmm? Yeah, our last question of the evening. How do you deal with COVID? Oh, really? It's our last one. Our last one for now, unless you guys want to talk more. How do I deal with the comorbidities? Okay, first of all, uh, psoriatic arthritis is a common comorbidity, and I screen for it. It's like it, it may occur in about thirty percent of the patients with bad psoriasis, and I want to catch it early and get the patients to rheumatologists. So that's how I deal with that one. The next, probably most common comorbidity. Anybody want to guess what it is? I think it's depression. And I screen for it. I screen for depression in all my patients just by looking at them. And if they're sitting there like this, with a paucity of movement, flat affect, then I think they're depressed. And I will ask them, are you having any trouble sleeping at night? Which is a very non-confrontational question. That's a good lead into uh, to depression evaluations because Depressed people have trouble sleeping. They fall asleep, but then they wake up and can't get back to sleep. Uh, and then after I ask about sleep, when they say, yeah, I'm not sleeping, I'll ask them about their energy. And they say, yeah, I don't have energy when I wake up in the morning. And then I'll ask them about interest in activities and they'll say, yeah. I'm done. And then I'll ask them about suicidal ideation. Well, crying spells and then suicidal ideation. I work my way up to suicidal ideation step-by-step so I can ask about it in a relatively non-confrontational way. And it doesn't seem like an out of the blue thing. And if they are having suicidal ideation, it's imperative to get them to a psychiatrist immediately. Send them to the ER if you have to. And if they're not having suicidal ideation, then you could send them to their family doctor for you know management. The next comorbidity, uh, that's about all I do for comorbidities. Now you could say, Steve, don't you know about the cardiovascular comorbidities of psoriasis? And I'm like, yes. Statistically significant correlations between uh, psoriasis and things like cardiovascular disease. Now, I don't know if you've seen the data from Joel Gelfin did like the most landmark study done in the last 25 years, maybe since I've been in dermatology, except for my adherence studies. Joel showed that if you're between the ages of 20 and 30, and you have severe psoriasis, you're at a two, maybe threefold increased risk of having a heart attack. Is that bad? Uh, either put on your camera and nod your heads or put a message in the chat. Two to threefold increased risk of having a heart attack when you're 20 to 30 years old, is that bad? 
Bianca says, yes. I see more yeses. Okay. I'm going to assume that some of you are between the ages of 20 and 30. Of those of you who are between the ages of 20 and 30, how many of you are worried that you're going to have a heart attack in the next few months, next few years? How many of you have a will? You know, what is the chance that you're going to have a heart attack between the ages of 20 and 30? Roughly zero is the baseline risk. If you double, or maybe even if you triple that risk, is that any risk at all? No, it's no risk at all. It's nothing. I wouldn't pay any attention to it at all. Now, if you get to be my age and you have a 10 or 20% increased risk of an MI, that's a big risk compared to a two to threefold risk in a young person. Now, I have high cholesterol and my cholesterol is um, so high that uh, I need to be on a statin according to my preventive cardiologist. I've looked up the statistics. If I take that statin, it lowers my cardiovascular risk over the next 10 years of having a heart attack by 30%. That's a lot, right? Well, again, you got to ask, well, what's the baseline risk? My baseline risk of having a heart attack over the next 10 years is 7%. So if I take that statin every day and bring my cholesterol down, in theory, I reduce my cardiovascular risk from 7% to 10 to, to 5%. You know, the statin's cheap, not that hard to take a pill every day. I take it. But am I, am I really doing a lot of good? I'm reducing my risk from 7% to 5%. And maybe, Maybe because I exercise, maybe I don't even have a 7% risk. I don't know. So that 30% reduction, yeah, I don't even know if it's clinically meaningful or not. The preventive cardiologist says, well, if you're the one, it makes a big difference. Well, yeah, but that's not how probabilities work because I'm probably not the one. Okay. So if we were to screen for cardiovascular morbidity and psoriasis patients, what should we do? Yeah. Okay. So we should make sure the patients get whatever the standard screening is. But do we need to do more than that? Not that I know of. Some people say, well, you know, if you treat the severe psoriasis, it's going to lower the cardiovascular risk. I don't know if we have data to support that. But even, even if you were as, if treating the psoriasis was as effective as a statin is, you see the statin really doesn't do all that much when, yeah, I mean, statistically significant, you do see statistically significant differences, but are they clinically meaningful? You got to ask yourself, one of my former looked at all these different comorbidities of psoriasis and said, how many psoriasis patients would you have to see before you would have one more case of one of these comorbidities? One more, Melanoma, there was like a six-fold increased risk of melanoma in psoriasis patients, according to one study. But the study was done in Taiwan. And, and, and baseline risk of melanoma is so low in Taiwan, you'd have had to have seen 20,000 psoriasis patients before you would have one more melanoma due to psoriasis. And that's if you assume the, 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 that the relationship was causal, you know? So uh, I... I uh, after arthritis and, and uh, depression, 
get too excited about these comorbidities. Um, so yeah, so you got some great comments. Baseline risk. Always, whenever anybody tells you relative risk of anything, you're going to see these in the publications all the time. They'll say there's an increased risk of X. Therefore, we should screen for something or we should do something. Whenever you see that, go number one, I want to know what the absolute risk is. Number two, I want to show, I want you to show me some data that that recommendation that you're giving me has more benefit than risk, more benefit than cost, because we don't even treat every prostate cancer. Why are we treating every actinic keratosis if we're not even treating every prostate cancer? It's ridiculous. All right. Have I noticed the core connection between psoriasis and sleep apnea? Uh, I haven't. I, I seem to see a lot of people who tell me they are on sleep apnea masks and things. And I see a lot of psoriasis. So maybe there's a relationship, but I think, and, and I see a lot of obese patients in psoriasis. And it's possible there is a relationship there, but it's also possible that this is America. And there's just a lot of obese people and a lot of people with sleep apnea. So I, I can't tell from my experience whether there's you know a true causal relationship there or not. Discuss management considerations for psoriasis in patients who are pregnant. That's a great question. Okay, so let's look at, again, psoriasis is two separate diseases. For the patient with mild psoriasis and pregnancy, topical steroids, steroids cause more rapid development of the lung. And so you're, you're not hurting people with topical steroids. And so I feel comfortable with topical steroids. You could use other things, but try to keep the treatment as simple as possible anyway. So I'm almost exclusively just prescribing topical steroids. I really wouldn't give topical tazeratine um, because you don't want to give retinoids to a pregnant woman. If I'm not mistaken, if she's really pregnant, if you can look and go, you're pregnant, then it's pro. this is crazy, but don't tell anybody I told you this. But in theory, it's totally safe to give people all the retinoid you want, right? Because the effective retinoids on teratogenesis, if I'm not mistaken, you can look this up. I think it occurs on something like day 17 of the development process. And so the branchial arches, I think, are what's forming them. And if you if you hit it then with retinoid, bad things happen. And if you wait, if they're like 20 weeks pregnant, you know, you're already developed. The retinoid should, in theory, have no effect. But I wouldn't do it because 10% of all pregnancies have some kind of birth defect. And if you gave them a retinoid during pregnancy, you will get the blame for whatever birth defect it is, even though it's unrelated to the retinoid. So we do not give retinoids to pregnant people, even though in theory, in theory, I believe it could be safe. It says three to eight weeks of age of gestation. Is that right? Three weeks would be 21 days. I thought it was really early. I'll have to look that up. Somebody, if they have if they can Google that for me and find it be accurate, if it really is three to eight weeks, that's great. All right. But even eight weeks, that's really very early. Okay, um, Feldman, we're going to wrap this up. Um, oh, okay. Thank you all so much. Thank you so much for your time. I think everyone really enjoyed it. Um, you're wonderful to learn from and a great teacher. So thank you for your time. And hopefully we can do this again in the future. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. And thank you everyone for joining us. 
thank you for joining us on this episode of the Diga podcast. We hope you enjoyed. Please send us any questions or comments to DurhamInterestPod at gmail.com. This podcast is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment.